Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Our scripture this morning is taken from the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, reading chapter 6, verses 10 to 14, or first section of 14. Hear now the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the vials of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you will be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. This is the word of God for the people of God. So for those of you who may be visiting today or new with us, my name is David Lesner. I'm the lead pastor here, and people do often come to me for fashion advice. Um, and I have been known to never have ever picked up a copy of Vogue before. But this was the first week that I've ever had to—I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to go to the grocery store and actually pick up Vogue or Marie Claire or any of those. But I did uh, peruse some fashion blogs this week, just looking for some fashion tips along the way. And um, one of the things I was really, really actually surprised is that when you search up fashion advice around the subject of just belts— um, there's more than one site. There are just hundreds of sites around simply the subject of belts. And uh, there's a retailer in Germany that must have an exceptional Google Analytics team or marketing team because it doesn't seem like that big of a store, but they were the third hit on Google. And in their retail website, they have an entire page devoted to the history of belts, of all things. So this is what they had to say about belts in terms of the importance of belts. It says, despite being rather small in size and unobtrusive at times, a belt can definitely make or break an outfit. It is one of those accessories that shows whether or not you really care about your look that day. And men, just in case you didn't think fashion was judgmental enough, for men especially, the belt has become the most common accessory. Not wearing one almost gives the impression that you were too rushed or lazy in the morning to check your outfit in the mirror. So if you hear a sound of rustling next to you, that's the guy in your aisle who's like checking to make sure and see if they're up to fashion code. But I was getting ready for, we have a wedding this afternoon. Um, I was getting ready for the wedding rehearsal yesterday, and so I'm actually having to tuck in my shirt and 
putting on different pairs of pants and different shirts to see what the combinations are. And, and I started playing around with, what if I did tuck this in without wearing a belt? And um, in Josh's words earlier, I was going to do it up here, but he didn't, want to, he, he didn't want me to make everyone just radically uncomfortable the entire time. Because when you're looking in the mirror, it really does, it's this weird gap of there should be some accent line, like there should be something dividing the pants and the shirt, but when you tuck it in, it just looks awkward when there isn't a belt, and so belts bring things together. They, they bring the entire combination together. They make it make sense, but there is a utilitarian function to the belt, too. I lost weight recently, and one of the, uh, one of the pairs of pants I do have literally will not stay up if I don't wear a belt. And it reminded me of, and maybe Greg knows something about this too, but when we were at Curtis Middle School, um, we were at Curtis um, during um, two different fashion movements that were happening. And one of them was, um, for any University of Arkansas alumni, you may remember the 1994 team that won the national championship, Corliss Williamson and Nolan Richardson was the coach. And they brought into fashion the idea that basketball shorts should not stop here but they should be here and they should go all the way down to your ankles. Uh, and eventually teams that didn't have shorts that were pants um, just started wearing theirs a little bit lower in there. So we were at Curtis at the height in which people were wearing their Larry Johnson or David Robinson or, you know, the Mavis didn't have anybody worth noteworthy to wear the jersey of, um, but they would wear their pants just a little bit lower so they could look like the Arkansas basketball team that was so cool. The other kind of uh, perpendicular fashion trend that was happening was a few years earlier there had been a couple bands out of Seattle that was Nirvana or Pearl Jam called Grunge Rock and so we started wearing flannel and baggy pants and that corresponded with Tony Hawk and the, the Lords of Dogtown, the skateboarding movement that happened and so not only were the athletic kids wearing pants that were down a little bit but the skateboard kids as well had, had pants, and for those of you who are older who didn't go through this, um, raise your hand if you wore bell-bottoms at, at any point in your life. Yeah, you can admit it. Um, so bell-bottoms, for those of you who don't know what bell-bottoms were, they kind of, they, they flared out at the legs and they had your own little parachute that you walked around with un, around your shoes. Um, now take that width and extend it all the way up to your waist, and that is the jeans that people were wearing when I was in middle school. And what would happen on like a weekly basis would be um, kids were uh, walking, you know, they'd just grab their lunch. They weren't doing anything malicious, but they would grab their lunch and they'd be going to sit down at, the, at, the, um, at their table in the lunchroom. And while they're walking, because of the amount of stairs that they had to go up or down, their pants would just gradually fall to the ground. And there was a lot of embarrassing situations. Counselors and principals actually started keeping belts in, the, uh, in their offices for these kind of fashion faux pas slash school dress code, you know, violations. Um, and, and really what it speaks of is belts don't just bring the combination together, they keep it there, right? They keep everything from becoming an inc incredibly embarrassing situation. Um, and, and Paul, and, in, or, you know, the author of Ephesians is not writing for Vogue. Paul is not offering us really fashion tips. Paul is writing for a more um, contemporary crowd of Ephesus. He's using this metaphor of a Roman soldier, uh, and the belt that goes around a Roman soldier, which has different armor than this guy. The, the armor of a Roman soldier looked like this, and, but it serves the same two functions as skateboarding pants and uh, suit fashion. Uh, it brings the entire combination together. Now, what I did not realize about this armor is that there's nothing in the back. Um, this guy and medieval armor started, they were um, uh, kind of more one-on-one -on -one uh, combat, and so they would protect their entire back, but it was very, very heavy. And the Roman army worked as a uh, team, very well as a team. So they, the idea of their battle strategy was there was never anyone behind you 
at all and to allow for quicker movement, more flexibility, the back of it was left open and there were actually very little straps that kept it on. They would put it over their shoulders, which, you know, provided the structure, but then the belt would actually keep the breastplate there. And we'll get to the breastplate of righteousness next week, uh, but the belt would keep that all in place. And then soldiers didn't have a whole lot to spend their money on. They got everything for free, essentially. And so they started uh, bedazzling their armor in a way. So they would put lion heads or whatever, but some of them, to make it even more secure, started putting loops on their belt and then and hooks on their armor so that it would keep everything sturdy and in place because this was the difference between life or death is to how ordered, how in place your armor was. The belt literally was the most important part of the armor for keeping everything in place. And order is a big deal to the biblical authors. And one of the reasons why this comes first. Order is, a, uh, order is something the biblical authors speak of um, at length as importance. Order brings peace. And we think back to Genesis 1. What existed in the beginning was the chaos. Well, God comes in and provides order to the chaos. Separation of the day and the night, the land from the sea. And normally we don't talk about order as creating divisions because we've got divisions. We've got racism. We've got sexism. We don't like those divisions. But when you're looking at how God is ordering the world in creation, right, you've got the stars that are separated from the earth. And what would happen if a gigantic ball of gas was burning right in the middle of our church right now? It would not be incredibly pleasant, right? When a hurricane comes into Houston or Galveston and the water overtakes the land, that Division is necessary to keep peace, to keep life. And so order is something that is divine. Order is something that, that the biblical authors speak well of. And you, you go from creation, you got the law, which divides between clean and unclean, good versus evil. And then um, even going into Romans, you've got the whole passage in Romans 13 about be subject to the authorities. Basically, don't create disorder. Don't create these moments of embarrassing circumstances. Um, and largely, a lot of the letters of Paul start going into, um, a lot of letters of Paul are sent to churches that are in disorder, and disarray, where people have become fighting with each other, which is one of Christianity's favorite pastimes, is being in disorder with each other, fighting with each other about one theology versus another theology, and the conflict in Ephesians is that the church has come unglued. Really, the conflict in every letter that Paul's right, if you, if you want a Cliff's Notes to it, it's the Jews versus the Gentiles. They're all Christians, but it's those who became Christian um, out of a Jewish tradition where Christianity came from, or it's the people who became Christian because they, they heard the good news of Christ somewhere along the way, and they felt like, oh my gosh, this is everything I've been looking for. I once was lost and now am found. Um, but the problem, and this is what happens in kind of most human experiences, I've found. If I were to Move, uh, three parts, is, at least in Christian circles or religious circles, is the first is you have this really awe-inspiring experience with God. You recognize that I fall short of the glory of God. I've been chosen for redemption. God provides redemption through Christ. And I have this amazing experience of I have been found worthy and my heart is strangely warmed. And, 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 and perhaps it's a group that's experiencing this. Well, the very next thing they do is they they have this experience in a closed circuit, and then they go out into the world, and they realize, oh my gosh, not everybody experienced God like we experience God. Like, not everybody has had this warm and fuzzy feeling, and not everybody knows God the same way that I know. So instead of perhaps saying, so what is your experience like, and can you tell me something about how God has spoken or, or moved in your life? Instead, they um, either build buildings or create doctrines or something to distinguish them from the other group. The first thing that groups do when they realize 
that somebody is different than them is they create rules to make sure that the distinction stays there. And it's not, it's not malicious that we want them away from us. It's we just need to affirm that we're the actual chosen group. That we're the actual correct group. So we experience something that is absolutely divine, absolutely amazing. The second thing we do is we experience conflict in that. So the next thing we do, the third part, is we create doctrine and we create spaces that make us, make our story, make our way the right way, the correct way. And so you've got Jewish tradition Christians who have experienced the law that have kind of experienced Jesus as fulfilling the prophecies and fulfilling all the law, and, and it makes sense to them. But they believe that part of their story is following the law. So you have to bring the law with you in there. And so every Christian who is Gentile must be circumcised first. They must follow the law the way that they've always followed the law. Well, the Gentiles, on the other hand, kind of have this weird Pauline experience. Even though Paul was a, was a Jew, that he's on the road to Damascus and experiences God in this surreal way. And it's only grace. Right? There was no law. There was no circumcision in the Gentiles' experience. It was only grace. And so they're looking down upon the Jews as though you don't need any of that. This is superfluous and it's wasteful and you're actually heretics for claiming that you would ever need to do anything like that. You've got these two groups that are fighting against each other and it's creating very embarrassing moments. And you know, embarrassing moments of, around truth have existed in the Christian church forever. You've got this experience with the Jews and the Gentiles. You've got um, the Spanish Inquisition, which was Catholic rulers who wanted to purge Spain of all the Protestants, or even the converts from Islam or Judaism, they would go and they would, you know, knock, you know, knock down their door, essentially, and pepper them with questions, and if they missed one, they would die. And on the flip side, you had, um, you had Protestants doing the same thing in England, and then, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, turns around and does the same thing back to the Protestants, right? We, we have this experience that we know to be true for ourselves, and if somebody else doesn't buy into that or doesn't follow along in the same pattern of truth, we tend to just, instead of reach across the barrier, in terms of centering ourselves in what the actual truth is, we create the doctrine, we create the barrier, or we just eliminate the problem. And I would dare say we're in a moment of time. I mean, we're not in a new moment of time, but we're in a continuous moment of time where truth is very fluid. And I say that from the standpoint of human beings love to watch to watch or read things that validate what they already believe. So truth is fluid based upon what I choose to surround myself with, what news source I choose to go, what blog I choose to read. And, and with social media, if you click on something, it enters into an algorithm, and, and all they care about is keeping you on the page, and so they'll bring up things that are similar to what you already read, so you get in a more echo chamber of your truth. And eventually you become to believe that that is the truth. And this is not dissimilar any conflict we're having around what is the truth in today's society is not dissimilar to the Jews versus the Gentiles in Ephesians. And Paul starts with, the thing you've got to start with is the truth. What is the truth that Paul is bringing? If I were to give a, if I were to give a thesis statement on the letter to the Ephesians, it would be from chapter 4. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling— one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And it's that last part. The order in things was always supposed to be there's God and then there's everybody else and everything else. And, and in Isaiah, there's these you know, passages that, um, that talk about Jesus, uh, that, that 
God is going to bring this Savior who is going to finally reach out to the poor and reach out to the meek and, and treat them with equity and righteousness and this impartial bias of fairness because it's always supposed to be God and they're supposed to be everything else. And in Isaiah, we see how the rich have uh, t- started to abuse the poor, the powerful have started to abuse the meek, and all these disparities that happen within society. And, and Paul is really pushing us to say, what is the truth that we wrap around our waist? What is the truth that guides every thought that we have? And essentially, he gets to the point where he mimics or copies a little bit of what he wrote in Romans. And basically, if you were to center yourself in anything that we know is true, it's that I fall short of the glory of God, and so do you. I've been marked for redemption by Christ, and so have you. I have the chance to bring peace and goodness to the world, and so do you. This is Paul's starting point in his fashion advice because it is the one thing that guides everything else. If, every, if we don't have truth around our waist, then our armor starts getting shucked from this side to the other, and we start going with whatever we perceive the truth to be and whatever you perceive the truth to be, and we end up uh, in really embarrassing situations where people outside the Christian faith look at us and say, wait a minute, aren't they supposed to be about peace? Right? We get caught with our pants down. And if our pants are around our ankles, we're not very good at moving out into the world to tell people about the love of God or show people the love of God. Paul wants us to start from this one place of truth. What is the one thing that is common to the Christian experience? I fall short of the glory of God, and so do you. I've been marked for redemption by Jesus Christ, and so have you. I've been sanctified to go and bring peace to the world, and so can you. It's a truth that can center us in the love of Jesus Christ, which is the most powerful message we have. And, you know, I usually don't look at online Bible commentaries because I have no idea who's writing them and and how they've been peer-reviewed or anything like that. But uh, I found this just online commentary about the belt of truth, and this person was pointing out something that I thought was irrelevant until I was preaching last service. And um, he just pointed out, you know, when you play football or, or you're boxing or you're swinging a baseball racket or a tennis racket, where does your power come from? Or your power lifting. And where does your power come from? It comes from your hips. Right? Even if you're boxing, it's not about how strong your, your hand is. It's how you rotate your hips. Or if you're swinging a baseball bat, right? You swing your hips and your arms follow through. This is your power core. And he made the point, like, the reason you start with the hips, the reason you start with a belt around your hips is that's where your power comes from. Well, what's the most powerful message we have as Christians? It's not all the doctrine we have on social issues. It's not what stances we take on anything. It's not where we're born or what country we live in. The most prominent, powerful thing that we can say as Christians is, I fall short of the glory of God, and so do you. I've been marked for redemption by Jesus Christ, and so are you. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, Christ offers us forgiveness. And you're welcome here, and there's grace here no matter what, and you can grow even if you're not perfect now. Right? But you have potential to bring peace to this earth too. It is the most powerful message we have, and it gets lost in all the other stuff. But when we start with the belt of truth, it keeps the rest of our armor in order. It keeps our main message together. It keeps us from getting in embarrassing situations. And you know what? We might be more effective as a church, as the church, as Christians, followers of Christ. We might be more effective if everything was actually in place. If everything was in order, if we started from the place, I fall short of the glory of God, and so do you. So I can look at you with empathy, because once I needed grace too. 
And I was marked for redemption by Jesus Christ. Jesus came for me to forgive me of my sins so that I might gain abundant life and eternal life. And I believe that same thing for you. And with that, I bet we can bring some goodness to the world through God as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. That's why we start from the most powerful message we have to go out and bring the truth and not our truth. Can we pray? Let's pray. Gracious God, it's in your holy name that we ask for um, forgiveness when we have been the Pharisees, when we have put our doctrine before our love, when we have put our law before your grace. We ask that you would um, put the belt right by our bedside so that each morning we wake up and we cinch up the rest of our armor so that we might not be offensive, but we would be defensive against those um, evil spirits of pride inside of us that keep whispering to us that everybody else is wrong. And God, while we seek your universal truth of love and grace together, may we start at the place of love and grace for the way that we look at ourselves in the mirror, the way we treat ourselves, and therefore the way we treat others. We pray your spirit will guide us in both humility and courage that before we even think about the rest of our armor, before we think about taking the sword of the Spirit, that we might rest in your truth. And that might bring us an overwhelming sense of love, an overwhelming sense of acceptance, an overwhelming sense of forgiveness, an overwhelming sense of grace. That's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today. And let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.